look, this is how I work best. If you want me to come in early, that's fine. I will. But then don't expect me to be able to be creative and be able to give you all these ideas I've been giving you because I simply can't work like that. And then, then I mean, I was just like, because <laughs> it's just like, this is literally how I work. And if you like my output, then you're only going to, you're literally only going to get my output this way. What is the point of me? I mean, this is Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, one of his whole things around play to your strength. This is a new and strange environment at first, suddenly finding yourself in orbit. I'm Neville Andrew Mara, and this is Never Normal, a show about breaking free from the boring default plan and living life on your terms instead. My guest for this episode is Vikram Seth. By day, Vikram is a senior economist focused on renewable energy at Shell. By night, he is the co-founder of Bounce Bhangra, an award-winning combination of high-energy cardio and Indian dance. They hold live sessions that you can join in central London and online. I should also mention that Vikram is my cousin, but he's been more like a brother to me ever since we were little kids. In this episode, we talk about how Vikram has tried to cultivate a sense of balance between his work, his personal passions, and his spiritual side. Vikram Seth, welcome to Never Normal. Thank you for having me here. My pleasure. I suspect, given our usual conversations, that we may well pull a Tim Ferriss symbology and run like four and a half hours long. So, in an effort... Highly likely. <laughs> In an effort to to prevent that, I'll try to keep the conversation a little bit more structured, and I suspect we may need to do a part two or part three or maybe even make this a weekly thing. But to start out with anyway, I, I would love to talk about your journey starting back a few years ago. Well, let me preface that by saying I've been reading in the news all about the Great Resignation and this idea that I think surveys say something like 41% of people... Uh, plan to quit their jobs in the next 12 months. As, and we're, we're recording this in, in December 2021, Christmas Eve 2021. That's been going on for a few months now. And like there were like in the US anyway, there are like waves of people quitting their jobs. But actually, the, the number is still is still that high of people who are planning in the next 12 months in 2022 to quit their jobs. 41% sounds like a lot, but it's crazy because that that actually is misleading. It's it, because most like boomers are not planning to quit their jobs. So it's 77% of Gen Z and 63% of millennials plan to switch jobs in the next 12 months or just quit altogether. I've written a bunch about that and spoken about it in other podcasts and all different ideas of like how you can quit your job, how you can become a freelancer, uh, starting a business on the side or just go like quitting and taking a year off and going and traveling the world. You took a different approach. And I would love to like rewind back to around 2016 and ask, first of all, what the heck is a sabbatical? And why did you decide to take one? Yeah. So just one more thing to add to your stats there so a gallup poll i think i can't remember when but like every time i check up on this it's almost always this similar kind of numbers 70 to 80 percent of people are perennially disillusioned with their job and every time they update these polls it's always 70 to 80 percent and i i those are that's definitely covering like europe and the and north america um i don't know if it's a global survey but 70 to 80% of people are perennially disillusioned with their job 
it's a bloody huge number and like that's the systemic problem that's not a like one-off issue so I okay, so what's the, so yeah for sure like i was disillusioned with my job at some point as well um so i've been in shell now i've been in shell for like 10 and a half years about i guess when it was it, it was um probably around six years through i was in scotland away from family like making new friends and been in shell six years constantly like looking at new opportunities and entrepreneurial ideas and all of those kinds of things but not doing anything about it feeling frustrated that i'm missing out on all of these trends that i've seen developing and then didn't act on etc so i guess i had the option or had the urge to quit and just leave and one go back to london and be with family for a bit but also just like chuck it all in and start something new and i did consider that but i found that being like a large multinational shell had this other option on the table which was take a sabbatical which is essentially take a break from so an unpaid break long term unpaid break not like a month or there could be a month but more likely so like three months plus it turned out that at that time Shell had this policy, which they've now got rid of, which was that you could take a sabbatical of up to two years, which is huge because it's, it's like a no risk solution. You can leave the company for two years. You're still, you, you're, you're on payroll, but not getting paid. And at the end of the two year period, you sort of just drop a line to HR and say, Hey, I want to come back. <laughs> so, um, is is like that was like a blessing a massive blessing uh in disguise for me or well, not in disguise it was just a massive blessing to be able to do something like that and the whole concept of a sabbatical so comes from this concept that every seven years you take a break from your career to replenish yourself that's and so the word sabbatical literally means something like you know cycle of seven years and i i i also read up a lot like on sort of design thinking and design thinking approaches, which specifically recommended that. And I don't remember whether it was the founders of IDEO or some other kind of design agency where they religiously did this. Every seven years, obviously they would have been around for a while to have many multiple cycles of seven years, but every seven years they would take a year off. So they would shut down their design agency for the full year to let everybody just do whatever. like. And the point of that was because it's a design agency, so it's highly creative and it gave a chance to everyone, not just top management, but the whole company to sort of go off, do their own thing, whatever that was. It didn't have to be anything related to work. It could have been do your own side project. It could have been just go travel, whatever, like anything to get your creative juices flowing again. And the whole point of that was a recognition that at some point you'll just get stuck in a rut if you're just doing the same thing over and over again. And even if you're not, even if you're jumping from project to project, at some point you just need space to not fill with the routine and do something else. So that is an amazing realization. And for me, that urge was just always there. Like I am, I am very creative, but I'm also highly, I, I desire security a lot at the same time. So 
this was, like you were saying before, like a perfect hedge for me. You mentioned, you used the word religiously, which I think is kind of interesting because just trying to think before you took a sabbatical, it was just, it was like this foreign word to me. Like it might've been a Jewish holiday. I don't know. I mean, I mean, the root has to be the same. You mentioned seven and I'm thinking like in terms of like uh, etymology, but also like the Sabbath, right? And, and it's it's the same concept on a weekly basis, like a day of rest where you're literally prohibited from doing things that resemble work and depending on you know, your religious beliefs, that might even include something like pressing a button in an elevator, interacting with a with a machine in that case. Uh, the idea of taking time off to rest makes a lot of sense. And I can understand why that feels safer than just sort of quitting your job. But I'm just sort of curious in the case of Shell, you mentioned the policy changed. But when you took your sabbatical, did you did you tell like your manager or somebody in HR like, hey, I'm feeling really burned out and I want to quit? And then they suggested this as like a counter offer or did you propose it or how did it actually come about? So I actually had a whole other thing going on. My decision to take a sabbatical was a culmination of stuff. One was uneasiness and this urge inside that I'm missing out. I need to do something. I need to try out some of these ideas that I have in my head, etc. So that was probably not enough of a catalyst for me. The bigger catalyst was that what had happened was around that time same sort of time my friend passed away so at the age of i think it was 28 he had like chronic illness from birth he had cystic fibrosis but the point was that when he passed away that was almost like my reflection on my own mortality and finiteness like this always happens right like you you need something external to kind of trigger stuff you already know that you need to do and make a change on, but you don't do it until something external pushes you in that direction. So I already had that inside, but then this was a major trigger for me that I, I needed to sort of resolve my own desires. And, and, and also there was another part of that was that part of my uneasiness was also just being away from friends and family. And this was a close friend who was in London passing away. So there's also just like the direct thing that, oh shit, I should be closer to friends and family because God knows what can happen. So it was kind of like multiple things. One of the first things I did on my sabbatical was to go and do a Vipassana retreat. Uh, we can get into that. But yeah, your question around how, how practically, how did I arrange it? So firstly, my manager was fully aware of the personal situation because I you know, took a week off to go to the funeral. I then, to my friend's funeral, I then said, actually, I want to stay in London. Like, I don't feel like coming back right now. So we sort of did this short-term thing where for a month I worked remotely. And then I came back and I said, hey, look, yeah, I, I, I need to do this. Like, I just need to do this for myself and, and I need to move back to London. So initially what I was, I actually had a few things going because, and, and I typically tend to do this. If, if I want to do something, I will have multiple avenues to achieve that. And then one of them may materialize. So I had three things going. One was I said to my manager, all right, I'm going to, I want to, I want to go and work. I'll stay in this role but I want to work from London. So we did that for a month. Then the second thing was actually long term, I want to move back to London. So if you can permanently move this role to London, then great. Otherwise, I'll get another role in London within Shell in somewhere else. And if that doesn't work, I'll leave Shell and find something else. So I had very candid conversations with my manager. Again, like I tried to make it a point to like, cultivate a good relationship with my manager because otherwise i mean if, if you don't have that then firstly like what's the point of even staying somewhere where you don't have a good relationship 
with people you're constantly working with. And then secondly, also, if, if you understand each other better, then you can manage all of these things. And it's, it doesn't then feel like you're pushing against this immovable process and system. You're just dealing with one individual human being who can actually influence a lot uh, for you. So I had like, very open conversations and we basically tried each of these almost. So I spent a bit of time in London. Then I came back. I said, okay, look, I want to uh, do something else. We tried to make working from the same role work but that like it logistically didn't make sense so then i just started applying for roles in london as well that didn't really work out until i just thought screw this i'm going to take a sabbatical because that was i think something else i just researched i brought it up with my manager and we saw that okay this can work and he's fully supportive of it and it was kind of like there was definitely like a thought in my head two years are they really gonna honor this and yeah. accept me back after two years of being away the prodigal son returns and everybody's like you as i'm listening to this like i kind of rail against you know corporate culture and climbing the corporate ladder and spending your life in a cubicle and and all of the stuff that's kind of become cliched these days escape the nine to five but one thing that is coming across is that and i suppose it's the thing sort of like daisy parents have been telling their kids forever and that's like you know go work for one of these big companies right go work for microsoft or shell or google or one of the big consulting companies or goldman sachs which I think have a lot of challenges, especially burnout and things. But at least one nice thing is, is sort of what you're describing, where you could stay within the company and do things like move to another city, although it didn't work out yet for you at that point, but also the policies of, of taking a sabbatical. And I think it, it's a weird sort of a balance for them in the sense that like your work is, is valuable enough that they're willing to leave a door open for you. And yet at the same time, you know, if it's like a three-person company – there's no way they could just have one of the people gone for a year or two and not hire somebody else in the meantime. So there's that sort of a sweet spot there where it's like, okay, we really value you and we, we accept that you need time off and we'll keep a role open for you whenever you're ready to come back and we'll be able to survive in the meantime. But this only works if you do two things consistently way beforehand. One, you have to perform. And two, you have to build up trust. If you don't do those two things, then they, you're not going to get the trust back. Family and my close friends always are joking around, especially uh, my, Manu, my brother, like constantly joking that they just seem to always give me stuff on a silver platter. And the reason he says that is because, for example, I will, I will always shape my working schedule to how I want to work. Like I do, and it sounds a bit ridiculous, but like, I do not work nine to five. Like I sit, that's not how I can work. Like sometimes I will, I will, well, quite regularly, like I will sleep in very late and then I'll work like extremely well. Yeah. <laughs> I only work extremely well, like midnight to 4 a.m. And, uh, and the thing is that, and that's not all the time, but like sometimes I, I just, I do that and I need to do that. And I'd much rather. So. I also question sometimes myself, like internally, I'm like, shit, am I just really just abusing this system? But what always gets reflected back to me is that nobody cares as long as you, it's, it's output focused. So, and, and that's what I, that's something that I really value a lot and is one reason, one reason that I've probably stayed in Shell this long and another reason, and also why I like ran away from 
uh, investment banking where I worked for a while because it was at, at least at that time and where I was in, it was the opposite. It was FaceTime. It was input. And of course, output's important, but you were literally valued on how long you sat in your desk. And for me, that's bullshit because I work far more effectively going out for a walk and synthesizing ideas for four hours and coming back and executing those ideas in half an hour than sitting there for four hours at my desk and doing jack shit because I won't be able to I won't be able to synthesize anything. I'm the exact same way. It's just funny for me to hear that from you as, as an economist, even like, I mean, I suppose it's the whole thing of like knowledge work is knowledge work. And, and obviously what you do has major elements of creativity, but it's just, it's, it's interesting because it kind of breaks the mold of what we typically think of as creative careers. But everything you're describing is exactly the process of, you know, artists and writers and, and other kind of like what I would call maybe more traditionally creative professionals professions where it's like yeah you can't strap that to a nine to five like if you're creative at the middle of the night you know i mean like like no one assumes that like ernest hemingway you know sat at a desk in an office from a certain time to a certain time and did all of his best creative work during that time you just sort of under accept this idea that as a writer yeah or as a painter or any any type of creative that like it comes in spurts and um what's the naval ravikant like uh hunt like a lion you know like go after a big kill and then rest for a while it makes total sense. I guess one thing that I'm hearing and, and I just want to kind of like echo for everyone listening is the amount of like thought and energy you've put into designing the way that you work and creating a situation where that's possible. So so sort of like pushing back against those kind of constraints, changing industries when you needed to, having a relationship with your manager that allows you to do this. Just kind of bringing it back to what we were talking about at the beginning, the idea of all these people both disaffected in their jobs, but many now actively planning to quit. You know, I mean, obviously the pandemic has changed some of this. People are more burned out than ever. They're stressed, etc. But I think a lot of what's going on right now is that workers feel empowered in the sense that, you know, the labor market is tight. A any company you talk to, whether it's a McDonald's franchise all the way up to, you know, Google or somebody with the most prestigious jobs, they all say that it's hard to hire right now. They're all looking for people. I mean, in, in the case of something like McDonald's, they're literally paying people to show up to an interview, just do the interview. If you'll just come, they'll pay you. And the reason I bring that up is because I think employees now have more leverage than ever to be able to to dictate the terms of how they work. And you've effectively done that. And you've done it at a time when remote work wasn't yet, you know, kind of mainstream accepted. And certainly the labor market was different, especially if we're talking, you know, five to 10 years ago. So, I, you know, I don't want to take us too far off track. But I just think there's something there for, again, for listeners, whether you work in one of these big companies that has a defined policy, like the one you took advantage of at Shell, or not. Like if you're just, you know, working in a smaller company, just the idea that like, hey, boss, this is how I can do my best work for you. And and first of all, having the self-awareness to know how you work best as you do. But but secondly, just almost like going on offense a little bit and saying like, yeah, I can I can do great work, but it's on these terms. And maybe that's just setting your hours, but maybe it's also like leaving work for a year or so and going away from that. Yeah, I, I, think, I think agency is a fundamental part of all of this and if you and what typically happens is that you will take on a job because you need the money and then because of that you are now beholden to this job because you need the money and then your lifestyle I mean, it's a standard thing right then you have lifestyle creep 
And now you're shit scared to let go of the job. And because you're shit scared to let go of it, you also throw your agency out the window as well. And you just follow what you need to follow because you're too scared to go off the path that's been set for you. And as a result, you're probably not even going to do your best work anyway, because you're, you're, you're acting out of a place of fear. So I think that for me, for me, it's a lot of this wasn't really that conscious, consciously designed initially. It was simply, I cannot work like that. I, I literally can't do it. So because I can't do it, I had to shape it how I needed it. And then I started to see that. And I would, I would have this conflict internally, like, oh, I, I should really show up at 9am every day. And it's like, yeah, but the days I would actually show up at 9am, I'd still be there at 9pm because that's when I, because I would only really do any work from 4pm to 9pm. So I'm like, well, why the hell am I doing this? Like nobody else cares. Nobody, nobody else is sitting there going, you know, he showed up at 9am today. Very good. Okay. Now he should leave. Like nobody, nobody's doing. So all they're doing is they're going, well, what, what's the output he's got here? And and, and again, I think like having that mindset of agency and then also understanding that you're not necessarily going to be able to shape things from day one because you you haven't yet built up any trust. You haven't shown what you can do. So there's a there's kind of a balance there of once you yourself have that sense of integrity that, yeah, I, I, I know I can do what I, I, I know I have done my best and shown it. And now I can kind of make use of that and cash in on the goodwill. It doesn't mean you have to spend three years doing that. You could, it could just be a month or it could be, you know, the first project you do, you absolutely smash through that project. And then that's your, exo- that's your data point to say, Hey, look, I can work well. You, I can do what you hired me to do. I can give you creative ideas. I can give you input and I can shape things. So now let me work how I work best. And, and again, for example, like one of another one of my managers ironically would work very similarly to me in in sort of similar patterns but would constantly question directly why am i coming in late like shouldn't for the first couple of times i responded saying yeah no i i'll try and come in earlier etc i mean this is just i'm just using a really simple example of like okay time of coming into work but that's just a proxy for everything else right because so many people just put so much emphasis on that but then after a a few times of having this conversation i was like look this is how i work best if you want me to come in early that's fine i will but then don't expect me to be able to be creative and be able to give you all these ideas i've been giving you because i simply can't work like that and then then i mean i was just like (laughs) blackmail them into your (laughs) schedule (laughs) because <laughs> it's just like this is literally how i work and if you like my output then you're only gonna you're literally only gonna get my output this way what is the point of me i mean this is gary v gary vaynerchuk one of his whole things around play to your strengths not your weaknesses and double down on your strengths. now if you've got a weakness which is pulling everything else down that's a different story you do need to pull that up to a good enough level but if it's just something like this, which is not even a real issue, it's just a perceived issue because you perceive that your manager perceives it as an issue and they perceive it as an issue because that's a, just a, it's just this imaginary construct, which is left over from industrial, uh, age. Like it's bullshit. It doesn't mean anything. So, uh, but it, again, it depends. It depends on the industry. It depends on what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, I think there's also just companies that are. You know, so, so one version of it is sort of like, oh, it's it's all in your head. Like you think you should perform a certain way 
not not about the output, but just like you know, maintain a certain appearance in order to look like you're whatever a good professional person at your company. And then it's just this internal thing. It's like sort of like if you're wearing mismatching socks, you're like super aware of it, but the rest of the world doesn't notice. That sounds a little bit like your case. I think in fairness, though, there are certainly companies and people and, and like you experienced in investment banking where they do put a lot of weight on that. And I, and in some cases, it sounds like, you know, maybe you can, as we've been talking about, sort of go on the offensive and just kind of be like, look, this is how I work best. Don't you want this output? Don't you want me at my best? And, and in some cases, maybe it's just, you know, find find the job or the industry or whatever where you can do your best work. I, I think it's both. Like I couldn't do that in in my investment banking role because it, it logistically, again, didn't work. Like you say, that was like a table state because that's simply how it worked. So that didn't fit for me. And um, I, I loved the work I was doing, but I couldn't deal with that culture because I, I couldn't maintain my creativity. I couldn't maintain my, like I was getting frustrated because it was too constrained. Yeah, it's a masochistic industry. It's like, it's like, let's all put in 100 hour weeks just for the sake of outdoing each other and competing on who's a better paperweight in their chair. But but if that works great for someone, you mentioned self awareness, like, I think that's another critical point. Like, if you want to do a certain type of thing, but actually, you don't fit into that area, then you need to decide what you want. Like, do you want to give up the thing you want to do to fit in? Or how do you want to play it? And for me, it was too much of, you know, I was giving up too much to do that. It was too constraining. What's well, a perfect segue, actually, because this goes to the broader point of this entire podcast of Never Normal as a whole and, and a lot of my work, but also in your story. And I think this is deep and, and I'll try to do it briefly, but like, I think underneath a lot of what we're talking about is this idea of to what extent should you be trading today for tomorrow? So if you work in one of those investment bank careers, I you mentioned that like, oh, if that works for you, look, maybe I'm just sort of biased and or or I only meet, you know, the people who burned out from that career and who left it early and whatever. And I know there are people who are very successful and, and who thrive in those companies. But I get the impression that almost no one enjoys at least that the level of working from 6am to 2am and the constant pressure and deadlines. And, and like, there are literally suicides and heart attacks among junior staffers in these companies from the pressure directly attributed to the amount of pressure that there is. And, and so then the question becomes, why does anybody do it? And the reason that they do it, as I'm told, is is not because, oh, yeah, it's so fun to put in these 100 hour weeks. It's because there's this sort of like crucible that you go through and then you make partner in a law firm or, you know, you reach some status in one of these firms. And now, ostensibly anyway, like you're higher up and you get paid more and you get some sort of profit sharing. And so you're basically just like grinding through this difficult period for some sort of reward that comes later on. And it's extreme in the case of those industries, but I think we all do this in life. I mean, school is is pitched to us as that basically knuckle down, you know, get through this thing, get the degree, and then you can go and do whatever, right? And, and even within school, I had plenty of this where it's like, you know, oh, the, the, you know, you're in middle school now, it's really important that you, you know, get through this and do well, because when you're in high school, then you're gonna, it's always like this, there's always this next level that's in front of you that you're preparing for. You had a friend pass away. And all of us have had, you know, some sort of awakening or wake up call or whatever you want to call it with the pandemic. And, and now we've got this, again, the topic from the beginning, this idea of a great resignation and all these people who want to quit and all these workers who are disaffected. And, and I can't help but think 
part of it is people waking up to the idea of like, sure, this path that I'm on right now might be societally accepted and it might lead to rewards down the road. And I've got this 401k that, you know, in 20 years, you know, I should be able to retire, hopefully. But in the meantime, they're sacrificing day-to-day enjoyment. You mentioned that as a factor in, in wanting to leave in addition to all the other stuff that was going on. So let's go back to it. 2016, I think October 2016, you, you had worked out this sabbatical with your manager at Shell. And so what did you do? Like what's what's day one or week one after they approve it and you're like, you're on breaks. Hey, see you in a year or two. Well, I think at some point around that time, I had a conversation with you and uh, you, you, <laughs> no, no. And the, the tip you gave me was just schedule something. Because if you don't just schedule something, then you could just be sitting around for a while. Um, without any kind of end point of what you want to do. So just schedule something. So what I did pretty damn quickly, I think I spent a couple of weeks at home because, again, uh, wanted to spend time with family, etc. cetera. Um, and then I thought, I need a break. I need to get out. And one of my, again, a close friend who I made in, um, who I actually, I, I, I made, uh, I, I met this friend in, in Aberdeen in Scotland where I was, during the, those few years and um, we became very close and I, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go and spend time with him. He moved to Dubai. I went to Dubai and it was just, it was just like going with the flow kind of thing. Like I, I had this, I had set in my mind, like, okay, where do I want to go? I, I want to travel around Asia. Uh, so let me go to Dubai first and then I'll figure out where I want to go after that. So I had this kind of thing in my mind that, I'm going to do some backpacking type thing. Always like massively into spirituality and yoga and meditation, etc. So I had in my mind that, okay, I'll go do some, you know, yoga retreat or some kind of like well-being retreat, you know, go to like yoga barn in Bali or whatever, the, the standard stuff that everybody does. But when I was in Dubai, my friend's brother picked me up from the airport and in the car so i've literally just landed and i'm in the car going to his house so it's literally the first thing that's even happened and i start chatting with him and he said yeah you know what um when i finished when he when he finished school or u- university he was like i need a break and so he ended up doing vipassana and i was like what's that i've never heard of vipassana he he told me about it and it's a 10 day silent medita- meditation retreat based on uh, set yeah, the, the the vipassana practice in 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 buddhism and the the one that he went on was part of the global network of voluntary vipassana retreats and it was like now i know it was the most hardcore one out of all of them because it's 10 days no eye contact no reading no writing no speaking no external stimulation whatsoever etc so anyway he's telling me about this and he's like you should go on that <laughs> And I'm like, and I actually, I was like, yeah, I definitely need to go on that. So by the time I, you know, like a couple of, I, I don't know why, like it was just like it resonated so much. So by the, um, by the time I got to his house, bear in mind, I have just landed. It was uh, landed from London to Dubai. So I literally did not go out for breakfast until I had already booked my place on a Vipassana retreat. So we get to his house and uh, that was the first thing I did. I just started, I read, started reading up blogs and whatever. And some of them were horrifying. Like people literally like running out of 
of Vipassana jumping out to them because they needed to escape and they were so embarrassed that they couldn't say anything to the uh, to the caretakers that they wanted to they, they literally just like jumped the fence and ran away and I was like I have to do this like I literally have to do this so I booked myself on the first Vipassana that I could find in Asia and it was in Japan and that was for like it was going to be like a month later or something so that suddenly like created my it, it created something for me to look forward to and it, it, it gave me that tangible sense of this is my sabbatical this is what I'm this is the thing that's going to rejuvenate me and and give me that creativity back again and it was just like I need to explore all of this. And, and one of the reasons that resonated with me so much is because I'd been spending so many months before that reading up on Wim Hof and trying out Wim Hof techniques, uh, the Iceman, and all of these kinds of things, and Edo Portal, movement culture, and all of these things. And, and one of the things which kind of resonated with me in all of that was, which always has, is putting my physical body under some sort of pressure, physical body or my mind, to train myself up in a certain way. And Wim Hof is about cold exposure and breathing. Ido Portal is about movement. And Vipassana is about, probably for me, what was the more important starting point, your mental state and just like shut out everything everything possible <laughs> so, oh and not talking i think certainly for me, yeah <laughs> would be a yeah. challenge so the, the funny thing was that uh, uh, and obviously me too yeah def- definitely so my my when i told my mom this her biggest concern was was not me going to some random village in rural japan uh, for 10 days and doing meditation it was how the hell are you going to keep quiet for 10 days and not speak. You, I have to ask. You mentioned it was that he went to. I think it was like the most difficult or something. Voluntary vipassana retreat. Are there involuntary vipassana retreats? Because that sounds terrifying. <laughs> no, no. What I what I meant is that this. So it's a specific network of There's there's multiple schools of vipassana and centers. There's there's one which is under Goenka, who is the man that founded it. And this is as far as I. I'm aware is one of the largest networks of Vipassana retreat centers around the world. It's like almost any, any country you can think of, they have a Vipassana center. But the point is it, the entire organization is completely voluntary. It's run by volunteers. You also go there, you go there voluntarily, but you also, it's also entirely free. It's based upon donations. So at the end of it, you know, you, you can donate or not donate and you can donate you know, one dollar or a million dollars, whatever the hell you want. So it's entirely run on goodwill and centers are built on a voluntary basis based on donations from the community. So it really is like the complete opposite of where I, you know, the corporate world and where I, what I needed to get out of and needed to take a break from. I love the serendipity also. I mean, this, this is also one of those travel cliches, but it's, it's damn well worth repeating and that is, first of all, just by like making space for new stuff to show up. I mean, I, I I think I forgot about this part of your story, or maybe I didn't even know it. But like, you literally had just landed in like the first stop, the first new country, the first place on the trip after starting your sabbatical. And like, not even as you said, gotten out of like the car yet, you're just on the way home from the airport. And immediately, you have this suggestion of, of what you should do. 
which it sounds like you paired with my suggestion of like put something on your calendar so all the time doesn't just disappear. And so you took those two together and ran with it and immediately scheduled like the most intense possible mindfulness experience. Prior to that, were you, I mean, you mentioned Wim Hof, you mentioned Ido Portal. Those are certainly practices that you could sort of contain within a normal lifestyle, right? You could do the breathing before work or something like that. So were you, were you already thinking, uh, you know, about the sabbatical as an opportunity to do something like this, to like find some sort of like spiritual quest? Or, I mean, I could imagine a lot of people take a sabbatical and just like, you know, do it to build a startup and hope that, you know, in the year that they're off, they'll build their business from, zero to one. And then when the one year comes up, you know, then they'll just call their their boss. And I mean, presumably, it's not like a contractual obligation on the employee side. And you can just be like, you know what, I took the sabbatical and sorry, I had a change of heart and I'm not going to come back. Was that like, was something like that in your mind? Were you thinking like, I'm going to take this year off and then try to replace my employer with some other thing? Or were you just basically like, I need one hell of a vacation? Yeah, I actually forgot about this. So interesting. I, it's you reminded me of a huge aspect of all of this. So, so one thing is, I definitely, I definitely left with the intention that I'm not going to come back. But I've hedged my bet in case I decide I want to come back. So, I, I very on brand. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I definitely left with that intention it was almost like a it was a free insurance policy like why the hell wouldn't i take it so um that was that so that's that bit but did i think i'm gonna do a startup or something or no absolutely not like i had zero i needed space I, and i and again like i've ha- i had by this point i had like six years of like creativity creative juices built up and like all this, like, I'd say, like, I'm not necessarily an entrepreneur, but I have entrepreneurial tendencies. And those entrepreneurial tendencies were going nowhere. They were just churning in my head for that entire time I've been in Shell. And they'd come out in like small doses of whatever creativity I could inject into a project I happened to be working on or like, you know, shape my career a bit by, you know, deliberately moving somewhere, etc. But the real juice was not coming out because it didn't have that space to come out. I never, you know, if I had like a one month break, if I ever took a one month break, which I don't think I did from Shell at any point up until then, you know, I would, I would use that to go on a holiday with family or like friends or whatever, like, you know, most of the time go to somebody's wedding in some exotic location. But, but the point was for, again, for me, the way I work is this, like, I, I try and stay true to my energy cycle, not my, like, I schedule my energy, I call myself according to my energy level, not my time, right? I absolutely, I'm rubbish at scheduling according to time. I, I completely follow what my energy is doing. And um, the, the problem was up until this point, that energy was just keeping on building up. So what you, what I remembered now is I had this intense desire to go and live with a tribe in specifically in South America, like in the Amazon or Peru or something like that. And um, one of the reasons for that is from reading John Perkins books. So the, the, the guy who wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman, he actually, before that, he actually wrote a whole bunch of books on shamanism and living with tribes in in the Amazon. And one of the reason he was living with all of them is because he was actually there to go and build a dam in 
like the Amazon rainforest, for example, or not him build a dam, but he was there to get intelligence and uh, and kind of co-opt the tribal leaders so that he could get the World Bank to come in and build something. And that's what the Confessions of an Economic Hitman is about. But what he wrote about before that. So I, I read up so much on this and one, again, I mean, there's so many tangents in here, but like one major interest for me is development economics. And even if you skip the development part, like development, personal development, spiritual development, global development. And a major thing for me was kind of similar to Vipassana. Like, what if I just shut out the whole of the modern world and go back to some of the most wise people in our society who don't have the technological and scientific tools to them and yet reach many of the same conclusions uh, as we do with the same scientific and technological tools, et cetera, et cetera. So like that, that was like massively interesting. But the specific thing that I wanted to go on, which again was like, a, it was a, it was this, uh, tribal tribal quest kind of thing like you go and spend like a month living with a tribe again i i wasn't comfortable doing this as a lone backpacker going by myself because i needed some sense of security so instead i was looking at like pay two grand for this company which had been it was actually a charity set up by john perkins going and living with one of these tribes so that gave me this like hedge again sense of security but unfortunately, like they, whatever, there wasn't enough people going at that time. And so it didn't work out. And so the next time I thought about that was again, this Vipassana thing. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not getting my like connection with wisdom with the tribe, but I can get it directly from myself by doing Vipassana. I, I suppose I maybe thought about this before, but I don't know that I ever fully connected the dots. Again, going back to the, the kind of things that you keep mentioning. So Ido Portal. If you don't know him, anyone listening, he's the movement guy, watches videos on YouTube. He just uses his body in like a super playful way, like a child. But he's all about sort of getting into your body and reconnecting with it. Wim Hof, same idea, but but about breathing and all the way down to the level of like your immune system and being able to sort of control it in some ways. And then again, cold exposure. And, and the thing about cold exposure, this will all come together in a moment, is that we have such a primal reaction to exposure to extreme cold, especially cold water. Like you can look into the, what is it, the mammalian dive reflex. It's like involuntary to go back to our favorite word. And, and this snaps you back into your body, right? And then Vipassana is this control over your mind. And maybe that's too strong of a phrasing, but, but something approaching that, right? It's, yeah, I it's mean, what, getting your thinking under control what, one of the and cool, being mindful. Yeah, one of the 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 core philosophy or the core task of Vipassana is accepting that everything changes. So you're literally meditating upon change. You're observing, for example, pain in your body. And instead of reacting to the pain, you simply observe that and tell and remind yourself that everything changes, everything is transient. And therefore, you're able to endure all of this mental anguish of thoughts coming through your mind, but also physical anguish, because you're constantly reminding yourself, do not react, this is transitory, this is going to change. And so it's, that's, that's the, but it is, yeah, it's a, it's a way of training yourself through direct experience, 
of the transitory nature of existence. Putting Wim Hof, Edo Portal, Vipassana, and then connecting the, the fourth dot now, the tribe, which is, I mean, you specifically mentioned the, I mean, it's one thing to just go in and like, you know, with some sort of anthropological curiosity, be like, oh, I want to see how these people live. But you, you specifically wanted like the wisdom of people who lack our modern technology. And I can't help but now put all that together in the same context as like the antidote for all the thinking and brain time <laughs> to to put it one way and you we're have, so we're so heavily in our brains and our frontal lobe frontal lobe exactly which is great yeah we're we're so in our frontal lobe that we're not in our body yeah and i, I mean i was going to say we're not in when we're not in our reptilian mind but but we don't even have we we don't even have awareness and control over our reptilian mind as some of the, you know, let's just say tribal people. But, but really what I mean is, you know, traditionally you probably had, we had more awareness and control of our reptilian mind, i.e. the part, the invol, again, the involuntary part of our brain that just reacts and responds fight or flight. But we're so in our frontal lobe that we're so mostly so far removed from our bodies. Hence why it's so interesting to see that like some of the large, like, you know, in the health and well-being space, you know, gyms, fitness, like Peloton, all, like all of these things, um, then like yoga, like all, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, headspace, all of these things, are, like they are huge industries. But again, they're industries now. We, we found a way of fitting them into our paradigm of business models as opposed to which is again why i was like vipassana was important for me because it was not a business model and that was critical because it's not designed in that manner but again again a lot a lot of these things are like we're bringing anti we're bringing those antidotes back in yeah to try and resolve some yeah. of the the pain that we have and the the like disconnection that we have that's what i'm noticing is that you were sort of like self-medicating with this kind of like anything that wasn't cerebral i guess is what i'm trying to say first you were doing it in these kind of like you know little doses around work and then it then it just boiled over to a point where you're like okay i need to just get away from this altogether and like perhaps this is obvious but maybe i need to tell you anyway if most people were to like get out of an airplane in dubai and have somebody tell them hey there's this thing where you go and they like basically lock you in a place for 10 days and you're not allowed to talk to anybody and the food is intentionally bland and you're not allowed to make eye contact you just have to sit there most people would describe that as prison and run the other direction and you're like awesome i'm signing up for this um <laughs> pretty much which says i mean it's it's one thing it says about your personality which i think is fantastic but it, it also kind of goes back to that same point of just burnout and you know i mean hey the show's called never normal and i think there are a lot of things that we accept we society in general accept as normal because they are sort of mainstream right now but this idea that like you spend effectively 24 hours a day less sleeping in a in this kind of cerebral state right where you're either like reading the news or working or doing something else on a screen all of which involves like thinking and analysis and stuff that you and i are both sort of predisposed to enjoying and doing anyway it's not bad. I'm not I'm not in any way against that stuff. I love that stuff. We're doing it right now. I'm analyzing <laughs> talking about you doing all this non-cerebral stuff. But the idea that a human being and body and mind can spend again like 24 hours a day doing that 
this is not normal. Like this has never been normal at any point in human history until very recently. It's never normal to use a very apt phrase. But again, <laughs> balance, balance is critical. And we're, we are imbalanced. We're so imbalanced towards our frontal lobes and cerebral work, etc. Like, I mean, there's so many things I can bring. First of all, just another funny coincidence. This is one of the major reasons we founded Bounce Bhangra, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to, but Bounce Bhangra, like it's dance cardio fitness for no other reason. And, and whether it's a business or not, whether we make money from it or not, is irrelevant because the point of it is that we need it ourselves, myself and my brother, we need to do this, which dance fitness, get into our body. And one of the ways that we close the sessions is through meditation and feeling your body and breathing, etc. So that one of the reasons for that is to provide, I, I mean, I, I'm maybe going into it too deep at the moment, but just to close that point, one of the reasons we do that specifically in central London is to provide an antidote to city professionals, people stuck and surrounded by this cerebral paradigm, like you need a way out of it and, and balance is critical. So again, like what, what is imbalanced? Working nine to five every single day is imbalanced. Like how can you do that all the time? How can you, uh, we, we have a structure of a corporate structure and a, a, a kind of company ownership structure via stock markets, which essentially follow a quarterly cycle of reviewing your performance. Like how is your, how, you know, what's your, what are you, what were your quarterly profits now? So you're basically forcing this regularity on something which is not necessarily regular. You're forcing linearity on complex dynamic systems, which are by definition non-linear. And, and this is, this is what, this is what our entire society is. We're, we're taking non-linearities and making them linear. And, and that causes a lot of pain and strife. Like, and it will come out. And it does come out. It comes out individually and it comes out societally. I might be overgeneralizing here. But I feel like there's almost an Eastern twist to what you're saying in the sense of like, I mean, seasons and nature and things exist, you know, universally. And yet I think in the West, in, in at least most of Europe and certainly in the United States and I imagine Canada. Yeah, we think in exactly in the way that you're describing. We tend to think like the graph goes up and to the right. Everything is sort of like linear, constant progress. And at least from my own exposure to sort of more Eastern philosophy and religion and even views of history, it's much more cyclical in nature, right? Things go up and then they come back down. There's a day and then there's a night. There's a winter and there's a summer and there's a spring and a fall. And it's just, it's, it's constantly cycling. And we talked about that a little bit in terms of like your rhythm of the day and the way you're sort of more tuned into that, I think than certainly the average person, but also just then maybe jobs than a typical job would would respect. But then even this coming back to this concept of a sabbatical, right? And you mentioned the idea of like an every seven years thing. Every seven years, yeah. So so actually, um, you're right. Like Eastern philosophy and Eastern traditions pay a lot more heed to circularity versus Western. However, a lot of the thought, a lot of my thinking in this space has developed even further through systems thinking and ec especially ecological systems. So, which is primarily a Western study or a Western discipline. I, I, I say that, I mean, in the sense that 
the people I've read are Western or in the sense that this is this is very core to invite like environmentalism and systems thinking and complex system dynamics, etc. Because actually, those two models get merged, the linear and the circular get merged in, in this. So if you look at how ecological systems actually function, spiral dynamics. So essentially, you've got a circular process, but that circular process is still in increasing to the up and the right as it's spiraling. So it, you've got this, you think of like a boom bust cycle, but the trend is still going up. You do have a circularity and you do have this rhythm of up and down and up and down and up and down, but it's still rising. And so again, there's also this concept of, well, actually what's happening is we're not just constantly going up and to the right, or we're not just constantly going up and down and fluctuating between A and B. We're transcending and including. So we're constantly transcending where we were before by going up and including that in there. So that's how things are actually evolving. Like when you're um, you know, when we evolved from ape primates to, to human or to homo sapiens, we haven't then, like the, the prior species hasn't been completely and utterly destroyed. They still exist. Bacteria doesn't suddenly no longer exist because you've got more complex forms of life. We've transcended bacteria and yet we still include bacteria in the world and so on and so forth. And so I, I think this is something that for me is really important because in the most forward thinking parts of society, this thinking does come in. For example, if you look at something like Google, how Google designed their offices and Facebook and how, how the, like, you know, big tech, how they design their offices, they have done this kind of transcend and include concept. And maybe they haven't really, maybe, you know, they, they've definitely done it towards their own, for their own benefit, but it's this acknowledgement that we need the traditional corporate way of working, but we also need to give something back to people. We need to give them that sense of rest and play, etc. Because having too much of an imbalance on the corporate side isn't giving these people who are all knowledge workers, because every single person working for Google is a knowledge worker. We don't have any industrial workers. Our entire business model, business is entirely like creative knowledge thinking in and software, etc. So they're far enough removed from the industrial model that they can play around with it. And what have they come up with? They've come up with exactly this, this kind of go back a bit, pick up something from the past. You could see that as a regression, but it's not a regression because they've, they've combined, combined that regularity and nine to five structure, et cetera, with something new and bringing in the kind of like, we need some playfulness. We need some time back. Just to make this a little bit less abstract, I can picture the exact graph you're thinking of, that kind of like upward spiral. I think Biology actually treated, uh, tweeted one recently. We can link to it. But if you think of even like a tree, so like there's times of year when it grows a lot because there's a lot of like abundant sunshine in the spring and summer and rainfall. And then there's times of year when like all the leaves fall off and when it goes sort of dormant in the winter. But it doesn't, first of all, it doesn't die in the winter necessarily, at least not a healthy tree, but it also doesn't just like stay the same size forever. So if you were to look at it through a lens of just cyclicality, it would seem like it's just staying the same forever. And if you would look at it through the lens of just like upward growth, it would seem like the tree is constantly growing bigger and constantly having more leaves. But in fact, it's going through like a spring, summer, winter, whatever cycle of losing and regaining leaves but it's also growing bigger and taller and more branches and all that over time even um weightlifting for example or almost any type of physical training has a similar thing like 
you have days when you're lifting and then days when you're resting and then days when you're lifting again, but ideally you're lifting more over time, maybe not from day to day, but certainly from like month to month. Yeah. So just just to circle back to the like stock markets, quarterly, quarterly performance, etc. So what you've just said, you see that circularity and the and the linearity on a the more you zoom out. So the when you look at that tree on a hundred year time horizon, you see that it's not just losing its leaves and it never grows the leaves back. It's going through this cycle and it is growing over time. But what we do, for example, with quarterly performance is we're so far zoomed in that we are looking only at like summer, winter, autumn, spring. We're not looking at, we're not looking at what's happening over time. It's only when you kind of, and now I'm thinking of like a, 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 a you know, like the graph of, I don't know, Tesla shares or something. I was right? thinking of the exact same example. Yes. <laughs> so now if you zoom in, if you zoom out and you zoom out or Amazon or whatever, you zoom out far enough you'll see the trend over time. And, you know, you can link this into like instant gratification, etc. Why are we so zoomed in? Why? And, and this is, this is the point. This was the point of, this is the point of the sabbatical. It's to zoom out. This is the point of Vipassana, to zoom out. This is the point of why am I interested in going and sitting with some tribal people who, who hold this wisdom? Because a lot of that wisdom is zooming out and being and stepping back. And that's so important because you don't see the upward trend of the graph when all you see is, you know, this week I worked 70 hours. And in my case, you know, my friend passed away. And then I'm stuck in this city without any friends and family. And my job's not going anywhere. Yeah. But if you zoom out, you see what's really going on on and you don't and because otherwise you're stuck in this reacting to your immediate mindset and your immediate condition i mean you you could apply this to say like cryptocurrencies where you know the people who are long-term bullish will react the same way every time there's a dip in the price they're yeah. like you guys are too zoomed in buy the dip buy yeah the dip. because over time okay yeah but, yeah. We see it going up. We're bullish in the long term. So you're paying way too much attention to the fact that the price went up 5,000 or down 5,000 yesterday. And you're missing the fact that it was, you know, whatever, 10 cents 10 years ago and $5 a few years after that and $1,000 at some point. I'm talking about Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and, and you're missing the fact that this is going to replace, like some aspect of this is going to replace how you currently do it. So if you look 50 years hence, you've just built a whole new Amazon from scratch, which you could have been part of on day one, for example. But the reason I bring that up is because these are all examples where the graph is is going up into the right. And you just have to have the right perspective to see that and to sort of ignore, you know, it's what's the see the forest for the trees or whatever. But I think part of the thing with your sabbatical and certainly your friend passing away is that like the graph is not always going up into the right. And you can also lose focus of that you know, when you're just so sort of squashed with all the day to day, you know, I have to be at work at this time, I have to do this thing, this project is due, oh, I'm too busy, oh, it's the holidays, and you're just, you're constantly reacting to some short term stimulus, you miss the fact that actually, no, you're not like, you used to have all these hopes and dreams, or you used to be excited about life, or you used to have more friends or have more time for friends or have better health or something else. And, and instead, you're just caught up in this day to day grind. And, and yes, your sabbatical does seem like the perfect antidote to that. And Vipassana specifically within it, like, I mean, I know that was 10 days out of what ended up being, I think, a year or more. So you did the Vipassana retreat, you had that experience. I was in Japan for the Vipassana retreat. So I, I wasn't so obviously, 
I then I stayed in Japan. So um, so after that, I, I I mean, I sort of just continued on that theme. I spent a bit of time in Tokyo, but actually it was like um, in, at that point, it was like a bombardment of too much modernity after spending 10 days in Vipassana. So again, I was staying with a Serbian friend who lives there. And uh, again, like I didn't come up with this suggestion. He suggested to me, he's like, look, what you, you're you in this mode right now. You should really go and check out this place, Koyasan. Uh, Koyasan is a monastery town in the mountains, um, which was supposedly the you know the birthplace of Buddhism in Japan. So it's where a Japanese you know, official went to China specifically to find out about Buddhism and bring it back and came back and was so affected by it that he set up this monastery town in the mountains because it was so peaceful. And so I then went there and I spent 10 days in that monastery town. Then I you know, spent a bit of time traveling around Japan after that and did finally spend a good amount of time in Tokyo and uh, in, in sort of the heart of like this crazy technologically powered place. And then, then after that, I went to India and again, continued on the theme, went to Kerala in the south of India and did an 10 day yoga retreat. So yeah, I continued on that theme. And then, then it pretty much ended after that because I spent a two, I went to two close friends weddings in India where I just got completely and utterly drunk. So, um, but it, it, balance, balance was needed. That was the real like stepping back phase of that sabbatical. I, I spent it only in India and Japan. And then after that, I, I finally decided, okay, I actually started then getting itchy feet that I want to create something now. Like I, I've done enough stepping back and going in inward. I was actually getting very uneasy that like, what am I doing to contribute to society? I want to create something. I want to do something and build something was that i would be remiss if i didn't ask you know you do these retreats especially like the vipassana but even like a 10-day yoga retreat did you walk away from those with any sort of like new i mean there's an experiential learning but was there some sort of like aha epiphany kind of thing that you did that retreat and then you were like i've got it or did you feel some sort of like sea change or was it just a like you know a bit more relaxed a bit less kind of with your head in work a bit less stressed maybe a bit more at peace or or like what, what was the what was the emotion when you finished those but also yeah like was there some epiphany there's a couple of things so one was more a reminder and a, a, like a experiential internal reminder that i need to do this i need to do these things much more often because again it's that balance and i i need that um i can't wait seven years to do it on another sabbatical it, so one was a reminder that like almost like, well, well done, you're back home again or welcome back home. Like this is who you truly are and you have to do this regularly. That was one which was more kind of subtle. But the other one was specifically from the past, which was this whole concept of anicca, which is the change, transient. Everything is transient. Everything is changing. That, I, I mean, I've, I've, since I've been a, kid i've been reading philosophy and and doing yoga etc but that concept has been largely theoretical at vipassana it was so profoundly in my face for example what are you actually doing at vipassana right you can't talk you can't do any of this stuff what are you actually doing you you have 10 hours of scheduled meditation every day so in that time the schedule is like one hour meditation 
a break and then a two hour session and then a break and then like another two hour. So it, it's all you're doing is you're just like meditating, take a break in one of those breaks, you will eat. And then the rest of the time, like you, you, there's nothing else you can do. You're not allowed to exercise. You're not allowed to run. You're not allowed to do stretching or anything like that. You literally are there for meditation, sleep, and a little bit of sustenance to keep you going, and maybe a shower now and then. When you have a two-hour meditation slot twice a day, and I'm, and obviously you have a ten, you're doing this ten hours, but a two-hour meditation slot lets you go very, very deep, and you're doing this constantly. But what happens is very, very quickly. Your body hurts because you're sitting in a cross-legged position. Yeah, 20 minutes and my ass is numb and my back hurts and I'm like, I'm already making like the grocery list. Precisely. In my brain. Precisely. So, so what happens is on day one, you're just fidgeting all over the place and you're spending the whole time. You're, you're absolutely not meditating. Like your mind is all over the place. Like, what the hell am I doing here? You're listening out, whatever. You're, you're doing anything but actually doing the meditation. Day two, I went up to the, my back was hurting now because after like another couple of hours. So I went up to the one person you're allowed to speak to is the teacher. And you can only speak in a given slot. So in my given slot, which is like, you know, 30 seconds to just like ask a question about, you know, whatever. <laughs> so I, I basically used up my 30 second slot saying to the teacher, my back is hurting. Is it okay if I have back rest? Because you can't just take a back rest. You need to ask for one. And, and my, the response I got was, you can take the backrest, but you're here for a reason. And you need to think about whether that backrest is going to support the reason you're here for or not. And I'm like, oh, for God's sake, like, screw the backrest then. <laughs> That's the most, like, zen possible answer ever. That's fantastic. But so the, the reason I say this is because by day three, my back is absolutely killing me. I'm sitting there doing two hours meditation. And then... What suddenly happened on like day four or something, I'm observing all this, all pain disappeared. And then every, I kept sitting down for like the next one hour meditation slot, the next two hour meditation slot, there was no pain. And then when the pain arose, it was no longer theoretical knowledge, it was experiential knowledge that, oh, this pain is actually going to go away. It will go away. I know it's going to go away. So that was, pro that was a profound thing. And again, it was... A, it's a subtle understanding because you kind of already know that theoretically, but it's a very different thing having a real example in your memory, imprinted in your memory that remember, remember when this happened, the pain actually goes away. And I mean, you can sort of relate that to like a breakup or whatever, like you could use that. But I think for me, that was like a critical thing. There's there's a book that's something like, I haven't even read it. I've just seen it on the shelf in stores like years ago, something like All I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And it's a, the title just sort of caught my eye. And I often think about that, that like, sure, there's some history dates and there's some, you know, physics or something that I didn't learn that that young but basically all of the like tacit knowledge you need to just sort of like go about all the book knowledge you need to just sort of go about life you learn pretty early on and it's just it's all those sort of experiences that convert that into something different it's there's such a huge difference between me saying to you oh yeah the pain will eventually go away don't worry about it which basically provides you zero relief and you having had that right and yeah when i think of meditation I think of meditation as basically first-hand experience 
of such like a simple truth like that of just sort of like you are not your thoughts right i mean that's that's kind of the standard example for mindfulness but any of that kind of stuff the idea that like by sitting still for a moment and actively i don't want to say controlling your thoughts because that's still not quite the right phrasing but observing but but distancing yourself i guess is the right way like just like discovering that witness perspective and realizing that like there's you and then there's all this stuff that's floating around and normally we don't have enough distance to be able to see that right it's that same principle we've been talking about right like back to the quarterly quarterly earnings reports so being able to sort of step back from that and see that i can tell you that or you can tell me that or anybody else uh but unless you've actually done it it's very different it's like you can't read a book about how to shoot a basketball well you could but ultimately you just need to throw that orange circle through a hoop a bunch of times and you'll figure it out like no amount of just like book knowledge about it will do the trick yeah and so this is all right we're going to end up in hinduism now <laughs> it was inevitable, I suppose. But yeah, so this is so two points on this. Firstly, this is a core fundamental goal and concept and point in Hinduism. So core Hindu philosophy, like it's clouded by a massive layer of mythology on top. But that layer of mythology is just to basically pull you in because nobody is, nobody connects with abstract philosophy ever. So you need that mythology. <laughs> Present company included. <laughs> I mean, which is which is why every every religion or school of thought has to have stories to connect and stories and morals and uh, fables and blah 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 to, because otherwise you, it's just like mm, nobody's going to bother with it. But anyway, the the core f- philosophy of Hinduism is direct experience is the is the only thing that leads you to the ultimate truth. You can only, you should only believe in that which you have direct experience of. And therefore, and so this is one of the, and it, 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 for, for any lay, any, anybody who is like unfamiliar with Hinduism, Hindu philosophy, or even people who are familiar, very familiar with Hinduism, but observe it at that mythological, like thousands of gods level, this may seem like, am I talking about the same uh, religion or school of thought? Because it doesn't come across like this at all. But this is the core, a core of Hinduism is that purpose of all of it is actually you should not f- rely on your teacher. You should not rely on anything else other than your direct experience. However, your senses, your five senses are not your only direct experience. Real direct experience of the core reality of who you are comes from meditation and comes from, and meditation doesn't, in this context, does not just mean sitting cross-legged with your eyes closed. It means following that which is most true for you. So for example, if you are inherently in love with basketball, if you take that to its conclusion, that is meditation, because what you will do is you will become one with that thing. And this is what happens when you, you, you like, this is easy to relate to. Like you can see, you know, when a musician, for example, if you, when you start learning music, you're all clunky. And then at some point, then you have to follow, you have to follow the structure. You have to follow like the notes in front of you because you have to play every single note each note. And it sounds robotic. And then slowly you get used to it and you memorize it and you don't need the notes anymore. And then, but you're still playing tunes which have been composed by other people. And then suddenly a point comes where 
you become like Mozart or Beethoven or whoever and you are creating and when you've got to that point it's coming from your innate creativity and that actually is considered in Hinduism that is direct experience that is you connecting with your truth and the the truth coming through you I mean there's different aspects of this and and uh, you know that that's a personal truth that's not necessarily an ultimate truth that's not that's not necessarily you like this, this is that's like you coming face to face with god expressing itself through you which what what else is there like what else is and what else is there to achieve in life other than expressing the ultimate truth of who you are through yourself and and this is the point this comes back to agency again and empower be feeling empowered to do what is the flow states getting into a flow state so like again all of these things are, are fundamentally linked so that, now that's that this the other point here is that i've been going for hinduism classes like a sunday school kind of thing of hinduism since i was like i don't know what it was like 7 8 years old or something like that but prior to that i was also already interested through our own like family connection and and practices and etc the thing that i constantly was being taught was this as a concept like it's all about direct experience like that's what the core part of hinduism is meditation is so important but what pissed me off over and over again was that nobody was teaching me how to meditate nobody was like what i was doing was the cerebral side of it i was learning and i'm reading and i'm listening to talks and i'm listening to i'm going to sunday school and we're sitting there and we're writing and we're learning and i'm like yeah but you're constantly telling me that the whole core of all this is physical practice of meditation and yet i'm not doing it i'm not doing the meditation whereas at home what we were doing is we're doing the prayers and we're doing the rituals and and the irony of that was that i felt the connection far more from the rituals and the prayers because that's designed to make you feel a connection it's not just and and so it's just so interesting that you've got these two things going the one which we have largely abandoned in most of the world which is the ritualistic prayers uh, going to the temple or the church or the mosque or etc the place of worship the congregation or even doing your own prayers at home and following the rituals lighting the incense tinkling the bell etc we've disregarded all of that we've chucked that out and when i say we i don't mean me and you i mean as a society that is not seen as the approach the approach has been replaced by the the cerebral side of it like let's study neuroscience let's understand consciousness let's delve into the hard problem of consciousness and see where god exists inside the brain and like let's 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 do away with let's do away with the yeah we're dissecting pituitary glands instead of <laughs> instead of lighting fires and just staring at them precisely um, and let, let sorry let's do away with like the concept of god and but let's keep the philosophy of it and let's delve into and that's that's why that's again why people are so or why i i i feel like the modern world is far more or resonates far more with buddhism than with other religions because buddhism has kind of already done that buddhism stripped away the concept it's agnostic towards god it's not agnostic towards suffering it says suffering is like real and let's take this practice and, and and it's funny that actually it's far easier to connect with all of this through all the rituals and the prayers and the lighting of the incense but you don't understand why you're doing it without the philosophy etc you don't understand the why from the practice but the 
the theory and the why and the philosophy means nothing if you don't do any practice. And this thing pissed me off to no end until I was like, I need to actually do the meditation and I need to actually do this. And again, I, I, I feel like that's another reason Vipassana was so crucial for me. And, and again, I was exploring this through yoga, etc., as well. There's a word that I hear often that for the longest time, I mean, it just sounds kind of cool, but I could never really understand what it really refers to. And it's mysticism. And it's exactly now now that I do understand it, it's exactly what you're describing. It's the difference between sort of reading the holy texts at a very kind of surface level of like, yep, on this page, it said that this thing happened and so and so was born in this, you know, valley and whatever, versus this kind of direct experience that you're describing. And every religion that I know of, at least of the kind of major traditional religions has some major component of of what you're talking about. And just going back to our earlier point, we live in a time that is not normal by historical standards. Like the the sort of absence of religion as a part of everyday life is a very recent phenomenon for most of the world. Like maybe a couple of hundred years at the absolute most in certain societies, but that's really stretching it. Like we're really talking about a few decades if you're talking like sort of like the median person walking around on the street not having a regular religious practice. And I don't say that to try to convert people or something, but rather just, you know, going back to your earlier point about imbalance. And there are all of these sort of what I think you could almost describe as like secular substitutes. Mm -hmm, exactly. Going back to what you were doing before before leaving your job and then being confronted with death and being confronted with this sort of sense of burnout and, and, and feeling too zoomed in, you're sort of rediscovering all of these various, you could even call them tactics, but I think they're, they're rooted in something much deeper than that. Well, isn't, isn't it ironic that uh, part of Wim Hof's part of Wim Hof's structure that he teaches, one of the three parts is essentially meditation and yoga. Uh, Ido Portal is about movement, but there's meditation in there as well. Like, it's again, exactly what you say, like secular substitute. And, and, and that's also why I was saying that this is what sort of philosophy is doing as well. Let's remove the concept of God. Let's make it secular. But we're essentially describing the same thing. We're, we're doing the same thing. And uh, I mean, this, this, this would bring me to my sort of my thesis as well of the, the you know, the, the key sort of trends that I've seen developing. Uh, we, again, we can go into this deeper, but the, the first two of those are essentially bringing back that which we've discarded and only recently discarded. The first one is community and the second one is regeneration. And regeneration is quite vast. Regeneration is, is almost sort of, for, for me, it's regeneration of our spirit, our self, society and planet. And these are all linked. For me, it is not a coincidence and it's not a separate aspect of this that we are facing for example global climate change and global pollution problems that's one and the same thing as being disconnected from spirituality because spirituality is the thing that you you can you can you can see the the earth as a whole system through like system dynamics and all of that which very very few people are exposed to uh, far fewer than are exposed to spirituality or you and, and again that goes at it via a very cerebral methodology or you can have the experiential thing which is religion essentially religion does that for you and you can pick any religion i mean pick take if you take islam and you take the entire congregation lining up and bowing 
towards a single point simultaneously. You create this sense of synchronicity and you, what you're doing is you're placing the individual, you're, again, what you're doing is you're zooming out. You're zooming out from the individual and you're placing them in the community in this sense of a whole. And that whole gives you this sense of a joined up spirit. And that joined up spirit with the rest of humanity connects you with the rest of the world as well. Again, like take any religion and a core part of that is going to a place of worship, which you don't have to do. But there's an energy that you get from going into a church with the entire congregation there. With, in, in Hinduism and in Sikhism, the word itself is called satsang, which you can translate that as congregation. But the real translation is satsang, like together in song, almost, like together in verse, like universe. You've created your own mini universe. The congregation is its own mini universe. Like all of these things are experientially putting you in contact with other people. And when do we do that now? We, we live individual lives in our individual flat. We don't live with our parents. Like as in it's everything is so individual to such a reduction, like to such a fractal level that the consequence of that is how can you not feel separated? There's so much there. We're definitely going to have to do a part two. There's so much there I want to explore philosophically. And I think we also must come back to what happened after your sabbatical, because there's a lot there that we can talk about and sort of how those lessons learned kind of played out in your own life and career. But as you describe this sort of intersection between religion and, and spirituality and like sort of the greater human condition, I think one of my weirdest beliefs, and it's not something that I necessarily like accept as true in the way two plus two is equals four is true, right? But it's the kind of thing that I that I spend time just sort of pondering. And that's like when you look at a tree, to go back to our favorite example from earlier, you see like a leaf on the tree and you kind of, you know that it's an individual leaf, but you don't really see it as separate from the tree, at least as, not as, as long as it's on there. Especially to the extent that like, it would be really foolish if one leaf on the tree somehow like sucked up all the light and the energy and the water to the at the expense of all the other leaves on the tree like just looking at it from from the outside you could see that if it like killed off all the rest of the branches or something by doing by doing something like that it would harm the overall organism it, to its own peril Right. Like, like the, that leaf wouldn't be doing itself any favors by destroying the rest of the tree by sucking up all the light. Now, I know that the way they're connected, that's not really how it works. But I often wonder. But there's a reason. Uh, there's a reason that that's not the way it works. Right. As in. Right. It's not a coincidence. Right. That that's not how it works. And I often wonder, are we not just some like giant human superorganism? Right. Where. We see ourselves, or even even simpler example to imagine, right? Like, you know, is is the finger on the end? Is my like little finger on the end of my hand self aware? Does it see itself as like an individual thing rather than just part of the overall me? And if it's part of the overall me, I mean, I obviously think it's part of the overall me. I don't want my like the finger on my right hand to like chop off the finger on my left hand in order to like you know become a more prominent finger or something like that. It just sounds bizarre saying it, but I often think that. Are we any different? Like as a human species, we see ourselves as all these individuals running around, but are we not just part of some giant superorganism? And then, and if that's true, if you accept that, then it sort of changes everything about our behavior and all of these games become zero sum. And we, why are we sort of living the way that we do and chasing the things that we chase after? It, it's funny that, um, so first of all, my headphones are going to die. 
So we're, <laughs> we're definitely approaching that, that point. It's funny that some of the most successful billionaires in the world, if you listen to some of the things they say, they will talk about playing infinite games and they'll talk about positive sum games and they'll talk about win-win solutions. How did they get there if they're like, if, if, if our societal assumption that this is a dog eat dog world, competition is important, everything is zero sum. If that's a correct assumption, then how did these people make it to the top? And it, just throwing that out there. Um, but also, I mean, this is an opinion, a hundred percent an opinion. Um, I could probably back it up with stuff, but I do feel that our core nature is a reason that we keep coming back to spirituality. And even though we've made our lives secular and our society secular, we can't get rid of the thing, those core aspects of spirituality. We simply can't get rid of it because we have this massive hole in ourselves and this void of meaning without those things. So I do feel that our core nature is everything as one and is seeing everything as a single organism. And it is kind of like the remnants of that traditional wisdom, like what was that movie called, Avatar and all of that. You still eat the, still eat the animal for sustenance, but you give gratitude to the animal for giving itself to you for your sustenance, etc. Like you see that as a whole. And I, I do feel like that is a natural state of being. And it's interesting how like completely going on in, in a different place, but look at crypto and look at Web3 and look at one of the major things developing in there, which is DAO. And DAOs are decentralized autonomous organization and they're essentially trying to they're essentially organizations which are trying to pull back in this joined up aligned a sense in incentive structure of organizing or making a company in inverted commas which everybody part owns and co-owns and therefore kind of turning on its head the traditional organization where you have these mismatched incentive structures based on competition and based on hierarchy and 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 based on lack and and scarcity and you go to this other crypto in itself is it in is 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 all built on game theory built on trying out experimenting with different ways of how can we coordinate society by changing monetary incentives in such a way that you actually create this win-win-win outcome and win-win-win for self, society and planet. So it's interesting that when we're also doing the same thing, we're trying to get back to this same place with the, some of the most frontier tech and concepts that yeah. we have. That's I had never really kind of like connected those dots before. I think we're going to have to do a whole deep dive into crypto and where you see all of this going. And especially because what you're saying makes sense the way you're saying it, but it's also somewhat counter to the typical narrative, which is proof of work mining is very compute intensive, which is very energy intensive. Therefore, like, you know, Bitcoin, i.e. crypto is destroying the planet. And that's a very, I think it's a bad take, but it, it's also sort of like, you know, running together a bunch of things that are related, but not necessarily the same. But I would say that it's, it's probably a somewhat common opinion from the people who've bothered to like have any opinion on this. I think it's a common opinion. And, and what you're saying is actually in some ways the opposite in that we could be using these technologies or there's the potential for these technologies to evolve in a way that actually undoes some of the harm of the last few centuries of 
greed and industrialization let's call it well i mean if you just uh, yeah we 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 can save the details for another one but even if you just uh, look at the primary mechanism by the that that all all of crypto works with in terms of how does it make a decision it through a consensus mechanism consensus as opposed to dictatorship consensus as opposed to top down this decision right it's it's bringing the power literally even with proof of work and bitcoin it's still a consensus mechanism it's still not a single actor making a decision for the entire network it's all of this is ledger technology and decentralized and, and you know we can dive into what all of that actually means but the the main point i'm trying to make here is whatever level you look at all of this the the underlying layer muted decentralized consensus everybody has a say everybody involved in that network has a say and and that itself is a fundamentally different way of organizing society it's closer to what we it's closer to how a tribe makes a decision although the tribe will probably still have elders like it's it's closer to that than it is to how for example shell operates right now although ironically shell is highly consensus driven so it's probably a really bad example oh, but that's a good example cuz cuz with all of these beliefs I'll spoil one of the cliffhangers and that is Vikram ended up back at shell after this sabbatical so I think we're we're going to have to yeah so we're going to have to well you ended up back there and and given all that we're talking about now like one could easily listen to this episode especially the second kind of half of what we've talked about and say okay this guy's like you know probably like a hippie yoga teacher like i gave away all my possessions and took a vow of poverty and like lives in bali and wears you know potato sacks and that's you know not not at all who you are um in one way right so i think there's there's a lot to kind of talk about this again what might look like on the surface might appear as sort of like contrasting opposites but actually there's a way to kind of work within the system and do what you want to do and i would love to kind of make that the main topic of round two and also talk yes what so the rest of the sabbatical and what you did after the sabbatical and and what kind of corporate life has been for you since then we hinted at bounce bungra but we didn't really talk a lot about what that is so we definitely need to come back to that and then into all the crypto stuff and DAOs and everything else that you're exploring and and what's next so i've got all those bookmarked as topics for for round two awesome look forward to it vikram thank you so much for thank joining you for having me on just to say we're going to do a round two awesome thank you yeah man it's been a pleasure